Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Who is our God is a key question for anyone who follows the Lord Jesus. And a particularly gifted thinker once answered that question by saying that God is whoever raised Jesus Christ from the dead, having first delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. This is undoubtedly true. But to our modern eyes, sometimes the God of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ don't seem to mesh terribly well. They don't always seem to be on the same page. So today I'm going into that territory where the picture of the old God in the Old Testament appears to clash with the picture in the New, into the books of Joshua, Judges and Samuel. Though I go with the conviction that Jesus is not good cop to the Father's bad cop. But anyway, first, some quick scene setting. God originally promised Abraham that he would give his descendants the land of Canaan to be their homeland. He did this about two weeks ago. Several generations later, his great-grandson Joseph led the embryonic people of Israel down into Egypt, driven there by drought. They were there for a while, and over time they became enslaved to various pharaonic slave labour building projects for 400-odd years. Under Moses' leadership, God led them out of Egypt into the desert where God made a covenant with them last week. Covenant being a, a sort of a sacred agreement, contract, understanding, whatever. The quick version of the deal was, well, Israel, obey God's law, and especially do not worship other gods, and I will be your God, and you will have the land of Canaan to be yours, this good land. And I will drive out the current inhabitants. Now later, Joshua replaced Moses as the community's leader or judge. A judge was not a king, it was more, and not only a, a judge as we understand it, although that was part of it, it was a religious leader of the people. They were the mouthpiece of God. The king was God, was Israel's God. Now, under Joshua's judgeship, they invaded Canaan and expelled many of its inhabitants, killed many of those that remained. In modern terms, it looks a lot like one of those ethnic cleansing-type conflicts of the 90s, Rwanda, Yugoslavia, and all that. However, they didn't see themselves as the initiator of this. They saw themselves as the means that God was using, that the fight was his, not theirs. And the theologians and thinkers that have talked about the just war doctrine, about when it is right for us to go to war and when it's not, quite properly don't rely on this incident, this history. Because this, this was God's war. So it has no value as a precedent for when our wars are justified. Now it's been suggested that what really happened was that Israel invaded and carved out a place for themselves in Canaan, much like people have been doing throughout history. There's this 
ongoing contest for the best land. And they needed a religious rationale to come up with their imperial conquest. So say the cynics. Well, be that as it may, the Bible is clear that God did not want there to be any Canaanites left in the land that he was giving them. And what's more, they weren't to take Canaanite wives to be their, women to be their wives, nor slaves, nor were they to keep any of the booty of conquest, which in, back in the day was the main reason you did war, was to get those things. So if it was imperial, it's a funny-looking imperial. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 20. But as for the towns of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. Annihilate them, the Hittites, the other people, just as the Lord your God has commanded, so that they may not teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods, and you thus sin against the Lord your God. He was quite anxious that they not have any relational, cultural or political connection with peoples that worshipped idols. Thus they were commanded not to make treaties with other nations, instead rely on the Lord to be their ongoing saviour. Presumably the logic was, if God's in your corner, who else do you need? And if you make an alliance with pagan folk, you're going to end up going to the parties and worshipping the pagan deities as well. well. In fact, we know from the rest of the scriptural record that the Israelites only partially did what God asked them to do, left many Canaanites alive in the land, and that later kings broke God's law by making alliances with the pagan nations around them, sealing the deal, as you did in those days, with marriages. I'm going to talk some more next week about why worshipping idols is such a thing to God, but I'll just leave that aside for today. The book of Joshua records the partial invasion of the land of Canaan and its settlement by the people of Israel. God is very clear. I'm giving you this land and it's mine to give. God's mega plan was that his people were going to be a light to the whole world. They were not chosen for their virtue, but for this broader, universal, saving purpose. Therefore, he didn't want them to intermarry with idol-worshipping pagans. He wanted them to stay dedicated to his worship alone and to trust him alone. It was also quite clear he didn't want them to have kings like the pagans did. 1 Samuel 8 records the Lord saying he was their king, but they consistently rejected his rule. In Deuteronomy 17, he had this to say, when you've come into the land that the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose one of your own community, you may set as king over you, who are not permitted to put a foreigner over you, who is not of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses, since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. 
and he must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Also silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantities for himself. You can sense the prophetic concern underneath this, can't you? Kings are going to exploit their people. Kings are going to lord it over you. He was concerned that kings would amass wealth and military power and alliances with other unbelieving nations. All of which were potential substitutes for the king and the nation just relying on God and no one else. He feared that unspiritual and insecure kings would lead his people astray. And the history of Israel is, yes, they did exactly that. The writer of Judges is wrong to say, as he often did, that in those days Israel had no king because they had the king of kings as their king. The problem was they didn't consistently acknowledge him. The first few chapters of Judges record the fact that the people of Israel settled into this sort of easy coexistence with the Canaanite people that were there. They married them. They happily worshipped their gods. God's fears were immediately realised. And the rest of the book records the cycle that follows. People sin, God punishes them, they repent and are delivered by God, that, delivered by a judge that God raises up. Peace and holiness return, and then the people sin again. And da, 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 da. You go through the cycle several times. When each person does as they see fit, which is a recurring phrase in the book of Judges, indeed it's the last verse, then the worship of God and the values of civil society go south very rapidly. Interestingly, it's not the pagan Canaanites that perform the worst atrocity recorded in Judges, the gang rape and murder of a powerless young woman. It was a group of men from the tribe of Benjamin, from her tribe, her people. A few years ago I preached on the invasion of Canaan and on the murder of the Levite's concubine I've just referred to. Let me know if you want copies of those sermons to dig into because there's a lot more there. Curiously enough, yanking ourselves out of that world back to now, doing what is right in our own eyes is very close to the rallying call of today, of our world. Do what seems best to you as long as you don't harm others. That's the way to go, we're told. We are living in an anti-authority, anti-institutional age. And I think that that individualism, that's all about me, that was seized on, is a reaction against the abuse of power that was rampant in the recent past. It's a defensive swing the other way. It's not come from nowhere. Think about it. Every New Zealand social institution has had its historical scandals unearthed in the last 20 years. Sexual predators running SIFs family homes, religious orphanages, and most recently, Dilworth School in Auckland. Now you guys, I don't know, who knows about Dilworth? Yeah, quite a few. It's, it's just a wonderful thing. To go to Dilworth, every boy there is a scholar on a scholarship, 
and they all are the children of solo parents. What a wonderful thing. Well, it should be one of a wonderful thing. One of those men who's recently convicted of molestation at Dilworth was asked to leave Dilworth back in the day and he went on to run the boarding house at Wairapa College. And I know this because Steph was there at the time. And one day he didn't show up for work. And they were told he's just gone. And that was typical for that age. If you got in trouble one place, you were just asked quietly to move away and you take your abusive self somewhere else and you repeat it. There's been stories about the psych patients abused at Lake Alice Hospital and I dare say others as well. My brother spent time there as a boy, so this is quite personal for me. I'll never know if he was brutalised there or at Kimberley, but it was the culture back then. And he may also have learned to brutalise, because hurt people hurt people. Brutal bullying in boarding schools, some of which closed, like St Stephen's in South Auckland. Now, in my time at King's, we all knew that as tough as we had it, we were nothing like St Stephen's. The story went round when I was in about year 11, that they just stood down the head boy because he'd taken to a year 10 with a piece of 4 by 2 Our head boy didn't do that. Hazing and sexual assaults of the armed forces, which were exacerbated by the forces closing ranks around the abusers and against the victims. Sexual bullying by the police. Sexual harassment in the workforce. Most recently in the spotlight has been the great and the good, the leading law firm of Russell McVeigh, a former partner, hitting on summer clerks. The good old days were not really the good old days. We have learned through bitter experience that giving people power over others without open accountability is a recipe for self-serving abuse of that power. The movie Philomena that some of you may have seen a few years ago is a good example of this. Young Irish girl has her illegitimate child forcibly adopted out by a Christian orphanage and she's prevented from ever seeing him again. So in face of this, we're tempted to retreat from the world to the only person that we think that we can truly trust ourselves. We'll be the judge of what's right for us. We'll be the judge of what's best for us. But the problem that we have at the core of ourselves is a sinful heart. So now we reap a bitter harvest from trusting ourselves and ourselves alone. Relational breakdown, social alienation, an epidemic of self-harm and some of the highest suicide rates in the world. But God's story, this mega story that was being launched back in the day in the Old Testament, is not the story of how I am saved. It's the story of how all of God's people have been saved as a people down through the ages how we are being saved. And anything that leads us away from engaging with his people is out of step with his plan of salvation. It seems to me 
that the prescription for the people of the time of Judges and us is kind of similar. We need to rebuild godly authority and learn to trust each other again. In church life, we need to operate in the light, not the dark, so that as far as possible, our decision-making is open. We submit our ideas to the discipline of other people and listen. And this is what we will be aspiring to do in the next little while when we talk about the back lawn development. And finally, that we commit collectively to discerning what the Spirit of God is saying to us. Rather than just continuing to vigorously sort of ride our hobby horses, we seek together to live as he would have us live rather than each deciding what's best for us. That was what we were trying to achieve when we got together a few years ago, looked at our future and came up with the Transforming Opawa document. But it goes even deeper than that. Not just organisation and how we relate. It's about how we see our faith as something profoundly social, communal, rather than personal and private. The individualism of the time of judges and our own are not what we are called into. We have not been born again as autonomous individuals, but we are into, born into a community of faith brought about by God. 1 Corinthians 12, it says, By one spirit we were all baptised into a million bodies? No, one which is the body of Christ. Now the old Baptists, our spiritual forebears, described it as walking together through life under the lordship of Christ, being prepared to call each other out. If we wander away from our faith like many have, if we make unwise life choices, enter unhealthy relationships, if we treat people like property, whatever. But it's not just about giving each other gentle stares back onto the right path. It's about encouraging each other, supporting each other, caring for each other. Seeing our Christian brothers and sisters' spiritual growth is something that is our concern, is our business. Again, I refer to that Transforming No Power document. We committed to walking together through life. Now, I'm one of those people who hears a word from God and realises it's a God once in a while. I talked a week or so ago about a recent time I'd experienced that. Many of us, I think, are, are probably like that. However, I think of a lot of our hunches and our, and our ideas are from God. Now, I don't normally feel his arms on my shoulders when I'm sad. I'd love to, but I don't. Usually I just trust that he's there and that he cares for me. But when I run into Gavin Parkinson, young Gavin, who used to come here, he won't let me shake his hand. I get a hug and I can feel that. I've got a choice. If you've seen Gavin recently, be prepared. He has the most horrendous haircut now. <laughs> He's got a combination mohawk and goatee. If you added a black turtle neck sweater, he'd look like a punk architect. Look at him. It's all been downhill for him since he left here. 
Let that be a warning to you. Any of you thinking of leaving it won't end well. Now when Barry smiles at me, as he often does, I'm warmed. When I meet my mate Daphne Marsden, there's always a kiss. We are the hands and feet of Jesus to each other. In many respects, he looks after me through you guys, and, and I hope vice versa. We need Christian friends. Phil and Alan have been hassling each other for decades. Sadly, it may continue for some decades yet. We, it's our exercise and growing patience. Katrine and Jackie have been sharing a big chunk of life together, strong, enduring friendships. Lots of filio, brotherly, sisterly love. In my life, there's Glenn, Carl, James, Chris and Doug. They're like brothers to me. God brought them into my life when I needed them. And they needed me. Praise God for them. Who are your brothers and sisters in the faith? Are you deliberate in nurturing those relationships? Can I suggest you need to be? Don't take them for granted. But we won't all be joined at the hip, but we can still encourage each other. Now, I get the odd card from one of our Opawa little people. Here's one I got recently. Pastor Rod, may the Lord surround you with his love at this time. Also keep those you love safe this Easter. Hope you're having a happy Easter. Love various little people from Opawa. Very sweet, made my day. When I left Karori, I got this card. Now, it's an unusual looking card. That's because it's actually a desiccated cow pet. I suspect this was in the interior of a cow about 20 years ago. It says, Dear Rod, a pat on the back, <laughs> from Laura, Weasel and Joel. I've got a little box with all of these. Possibly I need to put that one into sort of some sort of freeze-dry thing because it's starting to crumble a bit. Brotherly love, sisterly love, will not always look the same, but it is important. It can sustain us when we falter and gives us a reason to be here on Sunday morning beyond meeting our own needs. We should not retreat from each other. And just do what seems right to us. That is the path to loneliness and despair. God's path is to engage more broadly and more deeply with the rest of the body of Christ, which currently in this place is all of us. God is never truly silent in my life. He speaks to me through the arms of Gavin, the smile of Barry, the kiss of Daphne, and my growing collection of cards and notes and desiccated pieces of cowpat. Mind you, I've only got one of those. Our God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who raised him from the dead, having first delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery. However, that does not mean I understand everything about God and the Bible. Faith is not the state of of having no doubts whatsoever. That's more like a cult mindset. 
Faith is the state of persevering despite your doubts. Can I call on you to walk with us for a while? Amen.